Yeah, I think absolutely that the that networking in general is for organizations of all sizes. So we all are kind of interdependent. We all need one another. And we all have different strengths and things that we bring to the table. So just because you're not part of a large network or university system doesn't mean that you don't have valuable input or valuable things to bring to the table. Welcome to Inside Reproductive Health, the shop talk of the fertility field. Here you'll hear authentic and unscripted conversations about practice management, patient relations, and business development from the most forward-thinking experts in our field. Now here's the founder of Fertility Bridge and the host of Inside Reproductive Health, Griffin Jones. Today with me on Inside Reproductive Health is Dr. Jason Fernasiak from RMA of New Jersey. Dr. Fernasiak comes from a background of women's health care in his family, his father, was an OBGYN. His mother was a labor and delivery nurse. Dr. Fernasiak graduated from College of William and Mary. He went on to, to medical school at University of Virginia. He did his residency at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, and he completed his REI fellow at RMA of New Jersey's Robert Wood Johnson Fellowship Program at Rutgers. Dr. Fernasiak is involved in a number of extracurricular groups and planning activities in our field. That's why he's on the show. There's a lot that I don't even see on his bio here, like SREI and SRM Tech Committee. So we're going to jump into those as we talk about networking for reproductive endocrinologists. Dr. Fernasiak, welcome to the program. Thank you, Griffin. Good to be with you. Can we address that your name is obviously pronounced for Nasiak because of the fact that your father is from Western New York? Because anywhere else, you would be Dr. Jason Fernasiak, I'm convinced. Yes. But I can hear the North Tonawanda, Western New York, Buffalo, New York accent in the way that uh, Fernasiak is pronounced. Yes, that's exactly right. That was a a doing of my father's family. And technically, the Polish pronunciation should be Fernasiak. <laughs> which is, uh, which, which seems correct. And uh, the Buffalo-Polish legacy remains strong. So I'm glad that it's made itself to Virginia and later New Jersey. You've only been in the, the field for really a few years when we talk about uh the completion of fellowship. And I feel like I've seen you everywhere. And that's why I wanted to have you on for this topic, because you and I originally became acquainted from Twitter. And that was from, I think, a roundup that I had done, but you were also on the tech committee. And I wanted to reach out. I wanted to make sure that I knew everybody on ASRM's tech committee. And then I saw you at, uh, you know, you invited me to speak at the SREI members retreat a few years ago. And then I see that you're on the PCRS planning committee. And so let's just talk, like, before we go into any of these individually, for being someone relatively new to the field, why was it so important to you to be seemingly everywhere? Well, I don't know that I originally set out to be everywhere, but I certainly, from the beginning of fellowship, was really very attuned to trying to be involved with the entities and the bodies that kind of shaped the way that the field was was moving. So to be a part of organizations that were shaping the 
policies and the protocols that were in place for REIs was an important thing in my mind. Do you think of it as laying a framework because you're young, I'm young, and I always think of my networking as building a framework. I'm thinking of, you know, I'm me personally, I'm in my early 30s. I will probably be one of these people that works forever. And I think, you know, gosh, if I can build really strong relationships now and I'm still hustling in my 60s, 70s, God knows however long, God willing then I might have relationships with people for decades. Do you think of it in those terms? I do in some regards. I mean, I do think that this is a field that I will be in for many years to come for far beyond kind of the quote unquote retirement age, because it's just something that I love to do. So it's something that brings me fulfillment and brings me joy. And so being involved with all of these things helps build that for me. How much of it is no good deed goes unpunished, meaning you're working on one group or one event, and then someone asks you, hey, you did a pretty good job. Will you help us with this? How much of it is that? Well, I mean, I think that to a great degree, you your, your networking abilities and connections always lead to other networking abilities and connections. So you're, you're always asked to do more when you've done a reasonable job at things. And so I think that to a great degree, there is a lot of that. Um, There are kind of folks who have been identified as people who can get things done and who are interested in getting things done. And I think that's really one of the big things is that, you know, organizations really want people who have an interest in getting things done and want to do those things. And so you kind of do get a little bit of self-selection by having done some of those things for some organizations who then either tap you again to do things or, or or other organizations see what you've done, tap you to do things for them. I like that you said reasonable job too, because sometimes that is the standard. Sometimes it's just, we need someone to help out and it, it might not necessarily be this deeply outstanding, involved event or effort. Sometimes it is, but sometimes it's we just need somebody reliable that can help us pass this from one year to the next or one team to the next. Absolutely. What started for you? Where Of all the groups, what was the first one? You know, I think that probably SREI was really one of the first ones. I was the associate member chair of that organization while I was in fellowship. And that organization, I think, really started me down the path of networking and engagement in organizations in the fertility field. And then how did that parlay to the net? What what came after? I want to understand the sequence of each group and and event and how one came with the other, if they were involved or if you came to them separately. Sure. I mean, I think that some of them came uh, separately and then some of them just kind of came, as you had mentioned, with folks having recognized that I did a reasonable job at one organization and asked me to be involved with another. I have been involved with the American Society of Reproductive Medicine as an interactive associate member, and that's through Fertility and Sterility. And it's an organization that's led by Micah Hill as the chief interactive associate. And 
It's an organization that helps promote discussion uh, on the fertility and sterility dialogue, the forum for FNS. And so we promote the conversations about articles and things of that nature, and then are also involved in the fertile battles, which go on each month in fertility and sterility. So I've been doing that for a couple of years now and really enjoy that. It's a fantastic academic exercise and a really nice way to network with other folks. One of the other organizations that I have been involved with is the Crest Scholars Program. That's the Clinical Research and Reproductive Science Training Program. And it's a program which is for folks who are in, involved or want to be involved in clinical and translational research early on in their careers. And the uh, organization serves to put people through a curriculum through Duke and then subsequently gets them hooked in with doing research projects through the network. And it's a great springboard for early folks in the field. When you're passing through these groups or getting deeply involved in them, how do you see the distribution of folks from universities and health systems, folks from large practice groups or fertility networks, and folks from small independently owned practices? Yeah, I think that, you know, with organizations such as SREI or with Crest, there are, there's a, a great distribution. There are folks from large private practices, from smaller, more independent private practices, and then folks from the university health systems and medical systems. And so it's a great meeting of the minds with all of these folks from different backgrounds coming together to contribute different things to the conversation. There have been a few times, and I'm thinking of two different small groups in particular, where different people have said to me, well, we just feel like it's just for the bigger practice groups. We don't want to, you know, I don't want to send my people or I don't want to go myself to these particular meetings or organizations because I, I feel like they're just for the larger groups. In my opinion, to me, that seems it's all the more important for them to go if that really is the case. Also, because I think independently owned practices, because they don't have large support networks or entirely built systems within their operations, that they can really benefit from the knowledge of others, the networking with others, just to even have some people on the phone for twice over the course of a year to get on the phone with for a half hour, an hour to talk about some challenges they might be going through. To me, that networking seems even more important for them. Maybe you agree, maybe you disagree. What would you say to those folks? Yeah, I think absolutely that the that networking in general is for organizations of all sizes. So we all are kind of interdependent. We all need one another. And we all have different strengths and things that we bring to the table. So just because you're not part of a large network or university system doesn't mean that you don't have valuable input or valuable things to bring to the table. It just means that you have a different set of skills or things to bring to the table. So I absolutely agree that having folks like that come to those meetings and be involved in the discussions is really important. You mentioned the pros. You learn so much more. You meet more people. You have the ability to access them as resources. What are the cons of being so deeply involved? Well, you know, I personally, I don't see a lot of cons. And 
perhaps that is indeed why I ended up being involved in various things. Certainly, you can look at the downsides in terms of time away from the practice or time away from patients or even time away from family. But the fact of the matter is, is that these types of things are all a balance and you need to find that balance and ensure that it's right for you. If it turns out that the downsides of being involved with these things or that you're not spending the time that you need to with family members or that you're not able to keep up with your practice, then it's probably time to pull back a little bit from these extracurricular activities and ensure that you have that balance, that you have that feeling of equipoise when it comes to the extracurricular activities and your uh, and your curricular activities, as it were. When I'm thinking of other creative firms or other business development consultancies, and I think of the principle, inevitably there's always a point where someone is really successful. They've been doing it for a long time or worse if they haven't, but they just find, you know what, there's not more for me to gain or I, it's not the best use of my time to partake in, in any of these groups or go to a, the meetings, or even if they see the value at some intellectual level, they just don't make the time for it. I think that's a mistake at any level of business, given how quickly things are changing. And it's simply, if nothing else, even if things are going great, it's an investment for the next four years, 10 years to have to strengthen the relationships and really be a little bit closer to how things are developing. Does that apply? Does that same rule apply to every fertility doctor? I would say that it does. You know, we can't practice reproductive medicine in a silo. And just like we can't do really anything in this world in a silo, we kind of need that connection with other individuals. We need that networking. We need to be able to share ideas with folks because that's how we're able to grow. And Nobody has it all figured out from the biggest of clinics to the smallest of clinics. Nobody has everything figured out and we can all learn from one another. So I think that whether it is networking for kind of more official purposes, like being a part of SREI, or it's informal networking, just sharing ideas, sharing ways of doing things, that the networking piece is crucial for folks in all clinic sizes. None of us do have it figured out. And I I love an analogy that I heard recently who was talking about deep expertise. And one of the reasons why many people either they stay with one or they don't go any deeper or they're reluctant to pick one area in which to become a deep expert is because they view it as a closet. And they're either they they already think they've seen everything or uh, they they think that there's just that they don't want to go there because they don't see what's beyond it. When in reality, in becoming a deep, deep expert in just about anything, it's the closet to Narnia. You push away the clothes and you see that there is this entire world that you can really go infinitely deeper in, especially given that things are always being taken away and how things are changing. And for me in meetings, that can mean the impact of of digital media. You know, I don't know if in 15 years or 20 years, we're not going to go to San Antonio or Denver for ASRM. We're going to sit in our houses and attend with goggles on and all be in the same virtual. But I don't know if that's in 15 years or 60 years. How do you see digital media now, what it's doing in 
in a 2018, 2019, 2020 impacting the utility of meetings? Is it still as important to go to all of them? Can you replace it with digital media right now? How does it augment, hurt, interact with the in-person networking? Yeah, you know, I think that for a lot of things at meetings, you may be able to supplant the the physical attendance at meetings with the digital aspect of meetings. So, you know, lectures can be recorded or videotaped and things of that nature. So you may be able to get a lot of that information while sitting at home on your couch. But I think that one of the things that you certainly can't get now, and maybe one day you will be able to, but you can't get now is the conversations which occur between the lectures. So the time that you get to spend with individuals, networking, asking questions, and things of that nature, I really feel like you need to be at the meetings in order to have those interactions with folks that you can't get digitally at this point. And if you talk to most docs, especially when we're referring to the larger conferences, that's exactly what they say. Well, you know, I've seen this lecture before, or I've, I've read about this online, or I could take another module to come into the information, but I go to see people to have the discussions to talk about this. And so given that this is the case, why don't we just do that? Why don't we just have meetings where, where that's the exclusive purpose? My hypothesis is that doctors wouldn't come because it, there needs to be a little more context of the CMEs and the continued learning. But the value of the networking is why most people are still going to meetings, in my opinion. Yeah, I think that the value of networking cannot be understated when it comes to meetings. I think that probably getting rid of all of the lectures and the CMEs would probably be a mistake for a couple of reasons. I think that in addition to the networking, people do go to learn about new things and to be engaged in the lectures. And I think that in some regard, you know, that structure of having meetings with lectures allows for you to go and sit and be involved with things that you may put off or not do when you're at your home or at your own leisure doing things. So I think that in some regard, having the lectures and kind of the formal structure of a meeting is important. But I agree that the networking is one of the key, absolute key things at meetings. Do you network with any groups, conferences, interests outside of REI or medicine? To a small degree, I do, but largely it's within the field. I'm, you know, a board member of an organization called Creating a Family, which works with folks who have infertility and donor and adoption needs, but that is also kind of in the field. And then I also am involved with my medical school reunion committee. I'm the chair of the medical school reunion committee. So still involved with, with that to some degree. But again, that's kind of part of medicine. I don't really have a lot of networking that I do outside of medicine. That, that may be a shortcoming on my part for not being very well-rounded. I always think I, I've come to really believe that there's a tremendous value in going really deep in one discipline and then having a perpendicular layer of more superficial interest just to have a bit more of a 
of, of context of, of things that are going on. But what you're doing is essentially what business people or professionals of any kind or practitioners of any kind would have done 70 years ago. Just you're not doing it in one geographic location and you're doing it in a really specialized subspecialty. But networking today is this, it, it has the same value that the the people from your grandfather's neighborhood in Buffalo would have had 70 years ago of, you know, I own this business, but I'm involved in the Holy Name Society or the Boy Scout troop or the, the Lions because being involved in the community in this way allows me to access the benefits of that network as well. So as we wrap up the, this episode about networking, what haven't I asked you about networking for fertility specialists that you'd want to conclude with? Well, you know, I think that you pretty much covered everything that that I would think would be important when it comes to networking. I think that, you know, in conclusion, having the ability to network and be involved in networking is a first and foremost, a personal choice. In some regards, it is a professional choice and, and it may very well, in my opinion, be a professional necessity, but you can only have it be a necessity to to a certain degree in your life. I mean, you really have to have somewhat of a passion for being involved in the organizations that make change in the area that you're working. You need to be able to enjoy that and have that be a fulfilling part of who you are as a person in order to really get the most out of it. And just like how you and I met, listeners can start networking with you on Twitter. We'll link it in the show notes, but what is your Twitter handle? At Jason Fernasiak, MD. Jason Fernasiak, MD. Give him a follow. Start the network. Fernasiak, Jason, on Inside Reproductive Health. I appreciate it, Griffin. Thank you so much. You've been listening to the Inside Reproductive Health Podcast with Griffin Jones. If you have a strong opinion about today's episode, we want to hear it. Agree, disagree, or have another point to add, please email podcast at fertilitybridge.com and tell us if you recommend a guest or a topic for a future episode. If you're ready to skyrocket your fertility practices growth and double your IVF cycles, schedule your fertility marketing discovery call by clicking the link in the show notes. And if you just want to learn more tactics to market your fertility center, download our free ebook, The Ultimate Guide to Fertility Marketing on fertilitybridge.com, also available in the show notes. Thanks again for listening to the Inside Reproductive Health Podcast. And we look forward to talking more fertility shop on future episodes.